Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to another installment of The Shrink and the Pundit. I, Jeff, am the pundit of the pair and do regular commentary on culture, politics, and spirituality on my blog, dailyevolver.com, and on free phone call that I do every Tuesday night. Uh, and if you want to join that call, you can sign up on the dailyevolver.com website. I'm here today, as always, with our favorite shrink, Dr. Keith Witt, who has been in private practice for 40 years and has written extensively and talked extensively on integral psychotherapy. And we're always happy to be talking to our dear brother, Dr. Keith. How you doing, Dr. Keith? I'm always happy to be on the line with you, Jeff. Cool. Well, Dr. Keith's stuff can be found on his website, Dr. Keith Witt, K-E-I-T-H-W-I-T-T dot com, Dr. Keith Witt dot com. And you have, Keith, just released a new product through Integral Life. This is what we're going to talk about today, uh, called Loving Completely, Five Ways Relationships Work or Don't. And I love that title, Loving Completely, because that's kind of what I want to do. You know, I want to love better. I mean, at this stage of the game, that's the thing that is really most exciting to me. And certainly in my intimate relationship, but also in, you know, the world at large and in every moment to the best of my ability. So let's just start there, shall we? And why don't you just tell us a little bit about what loving completely means? Everything is relationships. Relationships with ourselves, relationships with God, relationships with each other. And all those relationships involve varying degrees of being at one with. And one of my favorite definitions of love is being at one with. And people, when they evolve, evolve towards more of a sense of at oneness, uh, towards unity, towards love. So loving completely is, is understanding that that multi-dimensional universe that we each walk into that's always shifting as we shift is characterized by us loving better or worse in a wide variety of areas with ourselves with our children and with our past present and future with our friends work with the environment and so on and loving completely is surrendering to that evolutionary impulse towards complete unity and loving completely then is unity with everything mm-hmm. um, and so that's the goal and it's the mission of of most of us in integral to support that evolutionary push as it is embodied through people interacting and consciousness interacting with the universe and with itself with mm-hmm. ourselves to think of love as a realization of unity this is kind of a thrilling thing actually i mean it, it helps me to walk around and see everybody that I meet as sort of myself, in a way. And not in an egocentric way, but just that I am them and they are me. And there's just a natural love that arises out of that, right? It's just there. Yeah. When you and I were talking about it, you said, yeah, I get it. I am a love machine. I want to be a better love machine. <laughs> yeah, I do. And, and, you know, a lot of people, if they were describing Jeff Salzman, would say, yeah, Jeff Salzman, love machine. <laughs> <laughs> and then the struggle, of course, and this is also 
something that you said when we were talking, is that we have the fear operating system and the love operating system, which are in opposition to each other. Yeah. And that dialectic between the fear operating system and the love operating system informs our life. Uh, in a way, it reflects a lot of the work of Suzanne Cook-Gruder and Bina Sharma, mm-hmm. where they, they organize their, their, their whole developmental approach off of the dialectic. Because there's always the dialectic. Until we get to, to complete unity, to non-dualism, everything's informed by the dialectic. And that dialectic is, is the fear operating system and the love operating mm-hmm. system. And eventually we want them integrated into the complete loving operating system. Right. And we could even look theoretically, first tier memes or, you know, the first six structures of human development at Ken Wilbert Altitudes that he talks about. Those are seen as motivated by deficiency, that there's something lacking in those first tier memes, taking us all the way up to orange and green. And that there's a shift as we move into second tier or as we enter integral. And that there's a natural move from deficiency to, you know, self-expression or being or creativity. And, you know, that can be seen as sort of a move from a, a fear operating system to a love operating system. And I, I do think the dialectic continues. And I think the dialectic is especially strong for those of us who are waist deep in first tier and, you know, from the waist up at second. You know, we're just <laughs> both of these systems online really strong. <laughs> or one's coming online yes. and we're feeling the pain of the old one. You know, the pain of the contraction of walking around with a grudge. You know, walking around as a separate self that is being acted on and having to act on the world is it's a lonely place to be, especially compared to uh, walking around feeling like I belong here and that this place is for me and that I'm supposed to be here. And so are you. And we are together and we are connected and we are essentially even, you know, one. We're unity is a whole different ballgame, a whole different flavor. You know, you see that in, we were talking about psychotherapy, how most people go into psychotherapy saying, what's wrong with me? Yeah. And and not just in terms of, in general, but in terms of each session. You know, where's my problem I want to work on today? Where's my problem I want to work on today? And a comment I made to you when we were talking about it is, that will get you through the first tier. You know, what's my problem? Yeah. What's my problem? What's my problem? When you get into this, so that'll actually speed your, your progression if you're in therapy. Once you get to the second tier, that slows you down <laughs> because you're entering the session with a, the bias towards looking for a problem instead of entering the session with the bias towards showing up and seeing what arises. Yeah. And more, more often than not, what arises is what's my strength that I need to focus on? <laughs> what's the virtue? What's the positive direction? that I need to focus my attention on and I, I want to um, condition my, my unconscious towards, my, my non-conscious towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so at that, po- at that point, that's back to the concept of flex flow. That's a flex flow approach. And it's just, it's just interesting, the tools that, that get us through the first memes are tools then that we have to set aside to move yeah. Um, towards later means. Yeah, I actually made a note uh, when we were talking about this uh, of something you said that is basically a different version. And you said, wondering how you fucked up will get you through the first tier, but after that it slows you down. 
Yeah. And isn't that just the, it's so true? I mean, how many therapy sessions or, you know, how many sleepless nights have we all, you know, me too, you know, laid there thinking, how did I drive this life into the ditch? So, so quite so badly, you know, what have I done? How have I screwed this up? And, you know, that's very interesting. And you're very busy with that through first tier. But after a while, yeah. you realize, wait a second, I wasn't supposed to get this right. It's not about getting mm -hmm. this right. It's actually about showing up and being expressing yourself and, and loving other people and taking care of the place. And that's, a, it's, you know, it's such a relief. I, I, yes. You know, I recently uh, I had a conversation with Terry O'Fallon and her, and her brother Kim last week. And she invited me to take her stages test. So I took it. And just as I'd taken Cindy Wigglesworth's spiritual intelligence test and had a similar great experience. I, I went over the spiritual intelligence test with Cindy and you go over these 21 dimensions and you see the points where you get arrested and you kind of look for how to move forward. Yeah. And so with Terry, she said, well, here's the point. You know, he, she showed me the sentence stem even. You know, there was a sentence stem that says, it bother, bothers me when, and I said, uh, people take rigid positions that cause other people harm. Yeah. And she said, so for you, the, the next stage is, is an automatically adding, and it bothers me when I take pos rigid positions to cause other people's harm. Yeah. And there was, the suggestion was, anytime you make a positive or a negative judgment about another person, make the same positive or neg negative judgment about yourself, which completes the, the loop towards unity. Because, of course, negative judgments about other people always involve uh, uh, in, internally uh, a separation from that other person. Not just a separation between me and, and the person that I'm critically judging, but a separation between me and that, that negative characteristic that I'm judging them for, because I don't want to see it in myself when I'm mm -hmm. seeing it in them. Yeah. Or, if, or I don't want to see the positive in myself if I'm seeing the positive in them. So I can get caught up in always admiring other people and not feeling an appropriate sense of admiration for similar, similar qualities in myself. Because, you know, development, in a way, doesn't have pride or false humility. Right. Development is ex experiencing what is in the present moment. Yeah, I think at the same time, we actually become really interested in feedback. And we, we talked about this before, yeah. that uh, at second tier... We want criticism, uh, sort of. I mean, at least we want to know how we're being seen and perceived by other people, and that becomes interesting. And and I think in a far, far less defensive way. I, I notice it in myself. I still have a lot of, you know, basically reflexive defensiveness when I hear criticisms. But, yeah. you know, that lasts 90 seconds now, maybe. Uh, and I can relax it pretty substantially just because... I want to just because, and a lot of times it's uh, criticism that I basically toss out. You know, I don't agree with it, uh, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I have that ability too. It doesn't stick to me now unless I, you know, sort of have a place for it and can, you know, metabolize it in some way. And, you know, as you, t <laughs> I always love it when you talk about, you, you know, you notice what you've done, Jeff, is you've <laughs> kind of turned your consciousness in your life into the Jeff Salzman laboratory. It's true. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you, you kind of take on these, these ideas and practices, 
And then you practice them in the Jeff Salzman laboratory, and you know some of them work better, some of them work worse. Um, and then that progresses you to the next step, and to the next step, and the next step. And then, out of that laboratory, what, ar- what has arisen is your mission. Um, and you see this with all of us. Uh, out of that, everybody gets a mission. You know, Terry did, got the Beyond Awakening a mission. Uh, you know, mission that, uh, okay, once you wake up, then what? You know, yeah. you want to serve the world. Um, you have the Daily Evolver, bringing integral perspectives into the world through the Daily Evolver. I have the mission of, of integrally informed psychotherapy and loving completely and, and, and the integral mindfulness, um, which is a form of integral living. Um, that, that I wanted to make that alive and vibrant and sexy and let everybody know how juicy it is. And that's my mission. Yeah. I mean, we all, you know, Ken brought the integral um, cosmology into existence, kind of birthed it. And, uh, and that's his mission, and it continues to be. It arises out of these little laboratories of our own life, and as we develop, that becomes part of it. That's one of the reasons that the, the, fifth, the fifth dimension in loving completely is purpose, deep mm-hmm. purpose. The purpose naturally arises from development, yeah. naturally arises from love. No, it really does. And, and I think the, um, the idea of the laboratory, this Jeff laboratory, and, and I know what you're talking about. And it, it, it's, it's been interesting to me lately. I've talked to you about this, Terry O'Fallon. We were talking to Steve McIntosh about this last night. And, you know, just the, the feeling states, the, the qualities of these higher stages of development as, as we move forward. And I remember Terry O'Fallon talked about, I think you've talked about this too, Keith, is that as we move into integral, we just develop a more and more stable ability to witness ourselves. So we're able to mm-hmm. see ourselves. So I, do, I can see Jeff thinking. It's weird. It's like, mm-hmm. how, where did that thought come from? And, and what was that reaction? And it's, it's just fascinating to watch this Jeff thing, you know, go through his life. And, you know, what I want to, I can have a fairly stable witness perspective there. You know, oftentimes I get sucked in and I, I'm, I'm Jeff instead of observing Jeff. And, there's, you know, that's kind of fun, too. But, you know, uh, at least I have the ability. And these, it, it's, it's so interesting to be that, that more and more people are mapping out and talking about the qualities of these higher stages. And even what you and I just talked about a minute ago is that there's a certain a turn that people make where you become interested in criticism rather than defensive about it. The, um, the, the shadow becomes more interesting. Yes, it's true. So I know you deal with all of this in loving completely and it's a cool new product. I'm just thrilled about it, Keith. It's on integral life and you have a sort of a, uh, why don't you just talk about what what you were thinking and how you put it together? Cause it's so unique. So, so I'll briefly describe it. It's seven, cl- seven sessions divided into 51 modules of anywhere from 6 to 12 minutes that have perspectives, some stories, and then exercises to do with yourself and other people. And it's all organized together uh, into a coherent form, but you can take any one module, and that one module will actually deliver in a particular perspective. So that's, that's how it's organized. But the whole structure of it arose out of, of, of some fiendishly complex work about how to teach, how to transmit, 
You know, then up until the 19th century, the way people transmitted were books and lectures. And then, you know, products, writing papers, taking tests, so on, that kind of stuff. So into the 20th century, we started adding stuff. So everybody got excited about audio when radio showed up, and then video as TV showed up, and then computers. The idea of interactive stuff showed up. Lecturers started getting more personal. You, you, when I listen to lectures, the lectures that I like, um, they're, they're not like they were when I first started listening to lectures back in the 60s and 70s. The 60s and 70s, the people that I was most interested in made a point of having what they said be so co- as complex and as hard to understand <laughs> and as intricate as impossible because they were doing it to impress the other professors and stuff. And so we all learned to speak this professorese, this academicese language. And like any other language, it's a fun language. I mean, I still, you know, Patricia Albert calls it penis head talk, and, you know, dismissively, obviously. <laughs> but I got to admit, I, I am a fan of penis head talk, and I enjoy it. And I, whenever I'm around people and we're doing penis head talk, I, I could happily be involved, though. I got to say, if me and another person are doing it, the rest of the room empties out pretty fast. <laughs> okay? So the professors started being more engaging. They started telling stories. They started being more personal. And now the, 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 the people that, that are the, the best teachers, they added that. But still, it was the lecture and the book format. You know, and I've written a bunch of books, and I've given, given a bunch of lectures. And, and even if you do uh, a workshop, I, I did a two-day workshop for 300 therapists in Pennsylvania a few years back. It was basically like getting up in front of them and taking them through ceremony after ceremony after ceremony after ceremony. It was like a fire hose of information and then ceremony and then experience and then technique and then, and then again and again. So at the end, everybody was exultant. Everybody was totally exhausted. But I don't think that very much was transmitted, really. I think people probably had some peak, a lot of peak experiences because we know how to do that. You know, I can give a lecture. I can take people through the stages of ceremony. We can have the peak experience. There can be an, an insight. There can be a personal um, exploration. And then there can be dedicating it to, to the whole. But how do we get long-term transformation? I mean, I know how to do it in therapy with people over time. But this has been a big issue. Eslan struggled with it in the 60s and 70s. They went back and forth. They tried everything, bringing people in, having people just meditate all day long and, and do programs. And gradually what we've discovered is that life is a series of processes that we adjust with varying levels of awareness. And, then there's the, the, and, and, and so how we adjust those processes and how we expand our ability to self-observe we can accelerate it to a certain point, but then at the other point, we just want to manage it. So how do we support that with artifacts? I mean, this class is an artifact uh, like a book. Mm-hmm. And so I can't personally be with, you know, a thousand people taking this class. And so I, to me, I'm, I'm looking to, I look to the brain research. Uh, what are we wanting to change? Well, if you notice, most positive change involves moving from painful emotion to more pleasurable emotion. Works for me. Um, yeah. And in my first introduction to philosophy was learning about the, the Greek schools. You know, there was the cynics, and there was the sophists, and there were the hedonists. And everybody, when I learned it, were all contemptuous of the hedonists, mostly because they identified them with the unhealthy version of hedonism. Um, in the 19th century, there was psychology that said the pleasure principle, we go towards pleasure and away from pain. 
And then we found out that people were way more complicated than that. But there is something to that. We all really want to feel good. We don't want to feel bad. So how do we go about doing that? Mm-hmm. How does that happen? And how do we integrate that into living good lives and, doing, and being virtuous people and being healthy and stuff? In psychology, Freud brought these two big things. One thing he brought was the concept of the unconscious, that we're being influenced all the time by forces that we're not consciously aware of. Huge. One of the seminal, uh, somebody who did uh, the history of the world said that's one of the seven seminal achievements of humans. Say it again, Keith. The concept of the unconscious is one of the, another, another one was the concept of DNA and chromosomes. Uh-huh. That, the, that Freud had two major contributions. One of them was the concept of the unconscious, yeah. that we are influenced by forces in us that we're not aware of. Yeah. Not fully aware of, or sometimes not aware of at all. Yeah. The, the no, second thing that Freud... Dis- and to think that actually a hundred years ago, people really didn't get that is just amazing. Yeah. You know. Oh, God. I mean, even what we were talking about a few minutes ago, Keith, about how the shadow gets very, very interesting to people at second tier and even, you know, green. And the reason is, is that I can't stand the idea that there's part of me that I'm not aware of. I want to know what that is. You know, I mean, it's just I can't stand it. So, you know, there's, just, <laughs> there's this imperative can't that I it. have to know. And uh, to think that that's 100 years old in human history is astonishing. Yeah, well, now 120 now, but yeah, about okay. 100 years. <laughs> it, it, it reminds me, you know, last night I was really worried about one of my clients who's depressed and struggling. And uh, Becky and I were doing the dishes, and something happened, and she got a little scared because I was d- distracted and crabby. And I interpreted it as her being mad at me. I said, yeah, you're mad at me. She says, I don't know, maybe. And then we just kind of let it go because we were doing the dishes. It wasn't that big a deal. So I woke up this morning and I realized that that was shadow. Mm-hmm. That actually she was scared of me being crabby, which always involves a little bit of anger because fear and anger co-vary. And so I, being bugged at her being scared, passive-aggressively, out of my consciousness, interpreted her reaction as primarily anger rather than primarily fear. Mm-hmm. And, and so then attacked her, you know, by saying, mm-hmm. you're mad at me. Right. And so then did my little, my Terry O'Fallon thing, and I guess I'm mad at you. So that was shadow, <laughs> a little bubble of shadow. Yeah. Okay, so I'm interested in that. And so you're interested in similar things. So that in the second tier, we see something like that, and instead of going into a shame reaction, which, and the shame reaction is always, I don't want to look at that. It's one of the reasons I wrote that book, The Gift of Shame. People really misunderstood that it, when we can feel the shame, it is actually a gateway into development if we can learn to be interested, which is an interest is a positive affect. Um, it's pleasurable. And so that's another example. We, we, we get more and more interested in our shadow and less and less wanting to avoid it. And that's our unattractive sides as well as our attractive sides. But similarly, we don't want to identify ourselves by our unattractive sides. It's very similar to somebody, you know, standing naked in the mirror, having one part of their body, you know, say right next to their belly button being a little too big, and looking at that spot and obsessing about it, instead of looking at the big, healthy, beautiful body that's surrounding that one spot, Mm -hmm. they're identifying themselves by that one spot, you know? Well, we do that psychically, too. So Freud discovered two things. Big contribution, one, was 
uh, the unconscious. And the other one was that if you can sit down and talk with somebody about stuff in an accepting environment, they heal and grow. Wow. That Freud essentially took things that were not talk-aboutable and made them talk-aboutable in the therapeutic session. And he even took it a step further because he said that if you do that, you become more intimate. And out of that intimacy comes problems, patterns, shadow material, relationship material, which he called the transference and countertransference, positive and negative. <laughs> and that if you can make that talk-aboutable, then people not only grow and go deeper, they develop a deeper ability to love themselves and love other people. And that whole concept of making things talk-aboutable in the therapeutic relationship you know, is the, the, the center core of healing has extended for the last 120 years in psychotherapy. But it doesn't, this is, I, I know I sound like Ken when I do this, but it doesn't tell the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> because this woman named Mar Marilyn Cloyster, she did a study with a bunch of girls. And with those girls, um, they all had therapeutic relationships, and she measured whether they changed or not. And then when she did her data, she confidently expected change to be associated with the therapeutic relationship. To her surprise, she found out that the therapeutic relationship in her study, as just as a therapeutic relationship, really wasn't associated with positive change. So she went deeper into her data. And she found that the therapeutic relationship was associated with positive change, if regulating and moderating painful emotion was a focus of the treatment. Shifting that sense of shifting painful emotion towards positive emotion. Hmm. If that was a focus of the treatment, the girls got better. Interesting. And so now we, we have this other element. You know, and, and so how, do we, now how does that, that happen? Well, the brain has two major modes of of action. One is the executive attention network, which is where we're focused attention like you and me right now. And the other is the default mode net network where we daydream and we go when we're not doing anything else. And we've been studying that. And the default mode network in happy people tends to be a positive, constructive default, default mode network where they're thinking about stuff in the future, problems they're going to solve, good things are going to happen. With people that have a guilty and dysphoric default mode network, where they're thinking about things they screwed up, and I shouldn't have done that, and I, boy, I really should have kissed Lori Garrison when I was 17, and she you know, <laughs> asked me, you know, that kind of stuff. Not, not to get too personal here. Yeah. <laughs> um, those people tended to be depressed and unhappy, and they tended to be high on neuroticism. And the people that were real distractible, that, you know, they just went from one thing to another, um, they weren't very conscientious, and they couldn't get things done. Um, and so we want that default network to be a positive, progressive default network, and we uh, positive, constructive, and we want to be kind of looking to, to using what we know to create better stuff in the future. How do we do that? How do we do that given that we're all at different altitudes, at different lines, different areas in relationships, and in relationships with ourselves and other people, either in states of healthy response or defensive states mm -hmm. where our capacity shut down? So that was the challenge in designing this class. How do I create an artifact that optimizes people's ability to do all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, it's it just, I tell you, you know, like I went back and forth. It was, it was the kind of challenge that just, you know, the, the Keith loves. Mm -hmm. 
And so what I finally finally came up with around it is, all right, so you don't do the fire hose. Terry says, you're like a fire hose, Keith, would you give a lecture? There's all this stuff, you know, it's hard to keep track. Yeah, that's a good point, Terry. Yeah. Uh, uh, Terry Todd. And so I went, all right, so you, you, you focus in on a specific area that might be transformative, you know, because we're a complex system. Sometimes a little push can change the whole system. You tell some stories about it because stories are what we all love, and that, that's what makes things alive. And then you give an exercise, a series of exercises. And the exercises that I suggest are, one, you, ex- you focus in individually on what is on your strengths and your vulnerabilities. In other words, the easy stuff and the hard stuff. And then you engage in a dialogue with another person about strengths and vulnerabilities because when we're together, we create another field that makes uh, more perspectives available to us and more experiences available to us. And then you have a practice that you can continue over time that might take you deeper and deeper and deeper into an area. And so that's a recursive pattern throughout those 51 modules. And now, with that, and that reflects the fact that everything in the world is, is fractals. You know, in complexity right. theory, what a fractal form is, is that whenever there's an interface of two things, like a dialectic, right at the interface you find fractal forms, which are recursive forms, always similar, but always a little bit different. You find that with knowledge going forward. Um, Terry O'Fallon said that, you know, in the integral we always have said, that you're stable in an area, then it gets destabilized with new input, and then you get disintegrated in your worldview, and then you reintegrate into a new worldview. Mm-hmm. So Terry, got, Terry O'Fallon got a little bit more granular with that. She says you're, you, you active, there's a place where you're receptive to new input, and then you act out of the new input, and then you're collaborative with other people, and then the new input is interpenetrated in your life, and you don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so how do we arrange growth experiences where first there's an active component, first there's a receptive component, then there's an active opponent, whether in fantasy or reality, you begin to embody it. Then there's a collaborative uh, component where you connect with someone else in reality or in fantasy. And then a capacity to do practices so it interpenetrates in your life and becomes something that you live. So there's the challenge. And so that's the part, even though I love all the content in Loving Completely, that form is the part of it that I'm most proud of and I'm most excited about. No, that's Um, terrific, And I love, I I did Terry's workshop a few weeks ago, and she talked about the process that you just mentioned as, uh, I love the word she used. She says, you have it, then it has you. Yes. You know. And I love that. That yeah. and, and that makes sense. If I if I really download it and work with it myself, and then work with it with another person, and then and just you know get some practice and just you know sort of keep the pick and shovel going, uh, you get it. Uh, and then it's in. I mean, you, then it has you uh, at that point, and uh, you know it's just it just becomes a, a sort of a stable download in your psyche. And, um, and I, I guess I'd ask you, Keith, what, give me a couple examples. I, I know you say you have 51 modules and you're talking a lot about intimate relationships. You yeah. Know, help me out here. So the shadow part. Yeah. You know, there's two forms of shadow. You know, stuff, shadow is what we don't, can't see. So there's two forms. One is just what we haven't seen yet. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> 
So, uh, so somebody, you know, like like uh, today, you know, all the electricity went off in Santa Barbara because they're fixing something. So my my genius son Ethan, uh, you know, he he's a he's a millennial, so he didn't go. All oh, the electricity's off. We're all screwed. Ethan went. You know, he wanted to grind his coffee. So he said, "Where's it? Where's some energy?" So Becky has a battery that the backup battery for her computer. He tracked down her backup battery and ground his coffee with it. <laughs> and so then, so then, then I said, "God, what am I going to do?" I had this call with Jeff off to the cell phone. He said, "Dad, it's backup battery. Why don't you just use, use that?" And so he showed me where the backup battery is. And so now I just know where to go if. The, the juice in Santa Barbara goes off. I have a little source. Of, I have a little juice well in my in, in my house that mm-hmm. I can go plug into. Okay, that's shadow. I didn't know that, but now I know it. Okay, so that that's kind of easy shadow. The oh. hard shadow is the shadow that we resist. Yeah. And so I there's I talk about the the, the concept of defensive states and, dis, and states of healthy response, which we, you and I have talked about. So I give an example of a defensive state. So a defensive state is somebody, uh, I feel attacked. Our nervous systems are always looking out into the world to see, to, to, to gauge uh, safety and dangerousness, especially in the social world because our brains are primarily designed to be social. Most of our brains are, de- are, are dedi- hardwired dedicated to social interactions with other people. It's hmm. fascinating. There's only a very small part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, uh, posterior cingulate, right over the forehead, a little mohawk that has to do with our sense of self, our individual sense of self. I find that fascinating. And so if our brain reads threat, then it goes into a defensive state where we become distorted, like I did with Becky last night. So I had a distorted perspective. I thought that, that she was primarily coming from anger rather than fear, which then led to a destructive impulse, which is to be critical of her for her, her anger, cut off my sense for self-reflection. I wasn't aware that I was coming from a defensive place. And my, my concept for empathy, because, you know, it injured her when I, you know, said she was being mad at me when actually she was being scared. Mm-hmm. So that's a defensive state. And so I encourage people to, first of all, learn about it. So that's interesting. And then I say, okay, when's, when's the last time you felt threatened? All right, so write about it. So I, I, I want people to have an ongoing journal when they do this. And then, so write about what was your amplified or numbed emotion? What was your distorted perspective? What was the destructive impulse? Where was your, your empathy and your, self, and your self-reflection cut off? Right? So, uh, you know, where's that? And as you write this down, what's happening? How are your perspectives changing? How are those emotions changing? You know, usually the negative emotions going down, positive emotions going up. And so now, the rest throughout the week, notice when you enter a defensive state, write it down. Write down the components and then make an adjustment to a state of healthy response. So in that particular area, you focus on that, learn that, develop some practices, and then your defensive states start becoming objects of awareness. Yeah. And then when the defensive states are objects of awareness, states of healthy response to the present moment are objects of awareness. Now, defensive states have more painful affects, and states of healthy response to the present moment have more positive affects. So we're, we're shifting that model from more emotional pain to less emotional pain, and actually more euphoria, more pleasure. Um, 
Now, this fits with an awful lot of research that people have been doing about memory and trauma. Because what stops us from doing this is our traumas, Jeff. Mm -hmm. We'll have habitual trauma memories that stop us from looking at things. That's why I was fascinated with shame. Shame is the look-away emotion. Literally, when a a child first experiences shame, which is around 11, 12, 13, 14 months, they'll be disapproved of. And what will happen is their muscles in their chest and their back and their face all go limp and they look down. They look away. And their nervous system dissociates. It goes away from whatever it was that bothered them. Um, and then that gets turned into a lot of our defenses. That's yeah. one of the reasons I wrote that book. I've, well, what if, what if we can pay attention, which is another component looking at shame. What if we can pay attention to the shame and say, okay, well, I just violated a value because yeah. I'm feeling an interior sense of disapproval. What's that value I just, I just violated? Hmm. You know, well, I, how can I follow that value or even refine it to make it a better value? And what's a practice that I can do to keep doing that? Yeah. And even better, I mean, how can I use that practice with another person so that I can love them better or receive their love better? Um, yeah. So there's another example. Yeah. It's like that turn we talked about as, as we get into higher stages of development where we actually want to turn towards our pain. So I would notice that I'm having a negative reaction to somebody. And it could be a waiter, it could be a friend, it could be somebody I'm doing business with. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. This is something I can work with. And so, yeah. you know, I notice my defensive reaction, I might write it down. I, as you say, you deconstruct it until it turns into love, basically. That's another note I made from a conversation we have. And now? I just, yeah. And so, but that, that's what you're talking about, right? I mean, that to the degree that we can deconstruct these defensive reactions, they sort of transmute into love. Or am I oversimplifying? Now we have to, no, no, it's completely right. But now, this is back to loving completely. But we have to embody it. Because sometimes people really are being distressed at our face, and we need to act on that distress. We need right. to set boundaries. And so how do we determine when to set boundaries? Well, there's another practice. Because there's kind of two forms of relating. I mean, of communing with people. One is what we're doing, which is just being transparent with each other. And it's funny, you know, I, I, I'm sure that you and I would deconstruct a defensive state, you know, if one of us felt hurt by the other, but mm-hmm. I can't remember feeling hurt by you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I'm just accepting that on faith. But... But it's so, that's one form, just relating, just being yourself with somebody else. And you know, when people are doing that, it doesn't matter what value meme they're in, because remember, what the integral level is, it's not different from the first value memes, it's just all the healthy manifestations of the first value memes. Right. Healthy blue gets along great with healthy green. It's unhealthy blue and unhealthy green that fight with each other. Okay? So one form is just relating. But then the other form is if, if somehow I can't relate with you, then I need to handle you. And handling you specifically means coming up with a strategy that diminishes the, the destructiveness of the interaction and, and increases the sense of it going in a positive direction. If I'm the person with the deeper consciousness in, in the conversation, you know, if I'm the person that's noticing that relating isn't working, then, then I have the deeper, more responsibility to handle the situation. 
and sometimes that involves uh, setting boundaries. The, the classic uh, example of this that everybody's aware of is 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 authentic help and codependent help. Mm-hmm. Codependent help with somebody is helping them stay fucked up. So that's like calling you know you, you know your husband's drunk, can't go to work, and you call up his office and say he's sick. Okay, yeah. that looks like it's helping him, but it's not. It's codependent. Okay. Yeah. And so what's, what's healthy? He says, call up my office and tell them they're sick. You go, no, not only am I not going to call up your office and tell them they're sick, if you don't get into recovery, I'm going to move out of this house. Okay? You set the boundary. Yeah. Okay? And so that's handling him. Because you can't relate. Because if you could relate with an alcoholic, really, they would be in recovery by definition. Yeah, and you could be So that's working, another dimension. Yeah, and you could be working with your own defensive reactions around all of that so that you can set boundaries and not be mean and hateful while you're doing it. Be kind. Right? Yeah. Be respectful. But, but, be caring. But yeah. It's, it's but really firm. something to have a firm boundary set by a person who's not angry. It's sort of like startling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and they really mean you know, it. And you can't me. talk them out of it. And it's, um, it's actually quite sort of impressive. You know what I tell guys? You know, back in the 70s, guys were really contemptuous. Of, to this day, a lot of men were contemptuous of therapy. And so me being a martial artist gave me a little bit of street credibility. And, you know, I, I'm kind of not a wimpy type person, as, as is kind of obvious. So that gave me credibility with guys. Yeah. So a guy would get all, you know, hostile and nasty with his, his girlfriend or his wife. I'd look at the guy and said, look, there is never, ever a situation to be disrespectful of another person. He says, well, what about if she does this? I said, you can be kind and respectful and set a clean boundary. I look at him and I go, there's only one situation where it's appropriate to do emotional, physical violence. And that's if you're in an alley and you're being backed into a corner by somebody and you have to, you know, kill them. I said, you know, that's the one exception, the street fight, you know, the unavoidable street fight. That's it. And so all the warrior types that I work with, they all relax when I say that. They go, okay, I have one situation where I can just, you know, waste somebody <laughs> yeah. if I want to. Yeah. But, the, the one but I, but I tell one. them, that's, that's it. There is no other situation where it is appropriate to be disrespectful or unkind. Yeah. None. Zero tolerance for emotional and physical violence with that one exception. Yeah. You know, occasionally red needs to be physically constrained. They do. But that's it yeah no with it's that true. one exception yeah 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 so it, when i think about particularly what you're saying about defensive reactions deconstructed turn into love it's like and it's, this is probably just the sort of contemplative analog uh to sort of what you're talking about as being sort of this therapeutic deconstruction is that i think of the years of buddhist practice i did where we did the transmutation of unwanted material or transmutation of a painful emotion in a meditative way where it's not about the story, it's not about who, it's about the actual feelings in the body-mind and you know, paying attention to them, allowing them to manifest, being very particular about how you notice them and all their detail and, and, and to uh, you know, continue to sort of release them uh, don't get gripped by them, allow them to flow, that there's a transmutation in that process too, that as they say, transmutes your, you know, suffering into wisdom. So mm-hmm. this is sort of the same thing, right? 
You know, yeah, it brings to mind Tonglen meditation, yeah. where you breathe in another's suffering, and then you breathe out love from your heart into their suffering. Yeah. So we breathe in the suffering in, say, Africa right now. Yeah. You know, and then in West Africa, and then we breathe our love back into that suffering. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, Tibetan meditations. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, Ken led a group in it once, and it made him cry. It was so sweet. Yeah. Ken was teaching everybody Tonglen, and then in the middle of it, he, uh, he started to cry. Yeah. You know, because the, the field that was created of all these people and him doing Tonglen together, it was just one of those overwhelming moments that just brought those tears of, of being yeah. touched deeply into yeah. your eyes. No, it's true. And, and furthermore, you know, if the theory holds up, it actually helps the people you're working with, whether, you know, whether they're in uh, the next room or in West Africa, that there is the, this idea of the thoughts or things, that, that these kinds of meditations literally uh, affect the field that we're all living in, the non-local sort of reality that we're all in. And so it is actually something you can do for people across the planet who are suffering. It's astonishing. I agree. Yeah. You know, when they've studied long-distance healers, long-distance healers will imagine the person that they're healing. Imagine the body. I've done a little long-distance healing a few times in my life. And so as they do that, their brains are entering theta and alpha, which is um, about 3 to 12 hertz. And so they're kind of getting organized. They're organizing the person. And then there is a burst of about 20 to 40 seconds of, of coherent gamma. 40 to 60 hertz. Hmm. And so this is what long-distance healers, when they've measured them, that's what they do. That burst of coherent gamma, in my, my opinion, accesses the non-local field and transmits the healing energy to the other person. Mm -hmm. and, and we have good data about people who love each other. You know, if I'm focusing on, say, you know, I love Becky, I'm focusing on Becky right now and on her, you know, being relaxed and happy and smiling and having a good time over at the Santa Barbara Life Festival that her, her autonomic nervous system is shifting just a little bit as mm -hmm. I do that. Mm -hmm. And that, that happens instantaneously. They, they did that research with couples um, where they put them in, in different rooms and had one of them concentrate on the other and had them hooked up. And so that really validates that, yeah, we're all connected and we're connected non-locally and trans-temporally. Now, this is where I'm getting kind of excited. This is kind of another topic, but around contemplative cool. practice and fractal forms. Because say you're doing, like I, I like to do a, a gross, subtle, causal, non-dual forms through um, the first nine chakras. I like doing that. Well, one thing that I've, I've been noticing is that, so, you know, when you're doing that, you, in blue, you have God in the second person. You know? Well, when you start getting to trans-temporal and non-local non-dual states, my, to my surprise, what I'm discovering is God in the second person in those places. You see, I was, I was mm -hmm. doing that meditation, I was just getting into that ninth chakra a couple months ago, and all of a sudden I felt like I was connected to Krishna. Mm -hmm. I thought, Krishna? You know, so I started saying, well, God bless you, Krishna, you know, and I thought, so this is, this is how people discover, you know, who their avatars are. You know, you know it wasn't mm -hmm. Vishnu, it wasn't Avalokiteshwara, mm -hmm. it was Krishna. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I guess Keith's consciousness is more connected to that form. 
and that that form, when it came down to earth, and when it was all the mystics that were, you know, they they kind of came up with Krishna, and Krishna is really different from Vishnu, and he's different from Agni. Mm-hmm. It's a different form, but it connected into the transtemporal, non-local place. It's it's unknowable. We you know we can't really move around and conceptualize there, so we have to turn it into something that we can understand in our temporal, local environment. And so, what it, what does it turn into? That turns into these these archetypal forms. Yeah. You know the Christ figure and 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 Krishna and 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 Kali. Yeah. Um, and Avalokiteshwar no. and White Tara and Green Tara. It's wonderful. And I mean, it really does yeah. give meaning to this idea that we are love generators, you know, that we are love machines, yeah. that we really can, ideally, I guess, at every moment. I certainly don't do it in every moment by any means. But when I remember two, I do. And when I, and I remember two more than I used to. <laughs> I'm actually amazed <laughs> at how easy it is to do when I remember two. And I really can change so, the Jeff, field. So- so let's stop with a quote from one of my favorite integralists, Jeff Salzman. Oh, please. Good. I am a love machine. I want to be a better love machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. And uh, as always, you're helping out. So, yeah, Dr. Keith, thank you so much. And again, the uh, product is, it, what would you call it? It's downloadable or is it on CDs or... No, it's loving completely. You go to Integral Life. You yeah. have access to each module for the rest of your life. Uh-huh. It's um, 51 downloadable modules. You can do them one, once a day, once a week. You can do them and then wait a while and do another one. You can do the 20th one instead of the first one. They're, they're designed to be completely user-friendly in that fashion. And then, after a while, after a bunch of people have taken it, I'm going to take some calls from people who are doing the course and answer questions, and then we'll put that Q&A in on available, uh, along with, uh, as, uh, uh, I have a long conversation with Larry Dossie and with Cindy Wigglesworth as part of the class, because I, I thought their stuff was, was important and added to it. And so that's it. Um, cool. That's how you get it. You go to Integral Life and sign up. Great. Well, I encourage everyone to do so. And, um, <laughs> Me too. And again, uh, thank you, Dr. Keith. Uh, shrink and the Pundit. Keith is the shrink. I'm Jeff Salzman, the Pundit. And uh, it's always so much fun to talk about these things. And, you know, I really do feel like we're moving the ball. It's certainly of great help to me. So, again, thanks so much, everybody, for listening. And thank you, uh, Dr. Keith Witt. Thank you. Thank you.